My dear wife has a couple of recipes that call for a cup of wine. And the nice thing about it is that when she buys the wine, there is no need for a corkscrew. All you got to do, twist off the top, and you're there. Uh, I believe the brand is Winking Owl. It's got to be a good brand, right? Because owls are wise, and if they're winking at you, the, you're, you're sharing a little secret, right? It's like, secret is no corkscrew. Yeah. Well, contrast that with someone who really knows their wines. They can argue the merits of a Chardonnay's fruity character versus the crisper, drier flavor of a Sauvignon Blanc. While I had to look those both up to know what they are. <laughs> the Napa Valley in California produces probably the, the best wines in America. And I'm sure that growers in the Napa Valley can debate the relative merits of the grapes that they produce, discuss how to produce the best grapes, uh, what can be done to enhance the soil, how to best tend the vineyard, and all sorts of things that they are into. And they can debate those things because those things are central to their lives. My wife and I, on the other hand, don't know the first thing about wines because that's not a big part of our life. We just grab a bottle at Aldi when a recipe calls for it. Now, in Jesus' culture, wine was important. Jesus lived in an agrarian society, one that paid a lot of attention to how to care for its flocks of sheep, how to care for its groves of olive trees, how to care for its vineyards and its vines and its grapes. And wine was a staple in Jewish homes, served at meals regularly, and they knew that if you wanted to have good wine, you had to have good vineyards, healthy vineyards. And it's into that context then of a culture that really understood wine and grapes and vineyards that Jesus said, I am the true vine. What does that mean? I mean, to us, it doesn't mean a whole lot because it's not as central in our culture as it was in theirs. To his original hearers, it meant a ton. We're going to do a little mini-series here for the next four weeks. We're going to be camping out here for a while in John chapter 15. Um, we're going to be unpacking what Jesus meant when he said, I am the true vine. And so for today, we're going to look at Jesus, the true vine. Next Sunday, we're going to look at God, the gardener. The following Sunday, it's going to be we, the branches. And then finally, we're going to look at fruitfulness. And this next four weeks may look a little more topical than we generally are. But we're just going to plant ourselves in John chapter 15 and stay anchored there and try to get the most out of this metaphor that Jesus used when he said, I am the true vine. So take a trip back with me to a vineyard in Jesus' day. You look and you see a field full of 
healthy plants, grape vines growing, producing. And around that field, you see a low stone wall. Stones were removed, preparing that field to be planted. So you, you take a field, you remove all of the stones, and you can plant vines. And you use those stones then to build this wall around it. And it stands as a guard against intruders. There's a watchtower in the corner of that wall. It's where the vine grower, the gardener, keeps his tools, and it allows him a higher vantage point to observe his vineyard and, and keep watch over it. Some stones remain in the field. Uh, they are used to prop up clusters of grapes to keep them off of the ground. It's harvest time in the vineyard. Some people are cutting large clusters of grapes and bringing them over to the wine press. Others are treading them out in this wine press, which is a large tub-like structure cut out of solid rock. They're generally holding ropes for support, so there's generally a, a, a kind of a trellis over the, the wine press with ropes hanging down that they can hold on to. And they're laughing and they're singing songs about the land and the grapevine and the grapes and the harvest. And it is a great time of celebration. The air is filled with excitement, with song, with the noise of the harvest. Juice runs out of the bottom of that large stone wine press down a trough and into a basin you can kind of see that on the picture there. Uh, the, what used to be the wine press would have been up above, but then you can see the channel where uh, the juice runs down into the base, and it's collected there and put into skins of leather or into large earthen crocks to be stored and fermented. And that was the sort of situation, sort of context that Jesus knew, the sort of vineyard that he knew. And it's against that backdrop that Jesus paints a picture for us in John chapter 15 about the relationship between his father and himself and us. The father is the gardener. We are the branches. He is the true vine. I am the true vine, Jesus says. It's another one of his I am statements. We've now seen all seven in the Gospel of John. Uh, in chapter 6, we saw him say, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. In chapter 10, I am the door. And also in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In uh, chapter 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. In chapter 15 here, I am the true vine. As we said before, each one of them is an echo of God's words spoken to Moses at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses said, suppose they ask me who sent you, what will I say? And God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am has sent you. And so every time Jesus gives one of these I am statements, he's echoing those words. He is claiming for himself who he really is. He is the great I am. 
And maybe the most stunning of all of the I am statements is in chapter 8, verse 58, that we looked at several weeks ago when Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. Not before he was, I was born, or before he was, I was, but before Abraham was born, I am. Really clear what he's doing there. And if there's any mistaking, take a look at the next verse, verse 59, where they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. He was claiming to be God. They understood what he was claiming in that statement. And this is the one who speaks to us in his word. So let's pay really close attention to what he has to say. Take a look at your Bible, um, John chapter 15. We'll look at the first eight verses. It's on page 752 in the Bridge Bibles that we provide if um, you need to look that up. So John chapter 15, we'll look at the first eight verses. Jesus says, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I also remain, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Jesus doesn't just say, I am the vine. He says, I am the true vine, the true vine. Uh, the Greek word implies real, genuine. Uh, we used to say, uh, this is the real McCoy, uh, was, it, was it Wrangler jeans or Levi's that, that claimed to be the genuine article? Uh, that's the idea. The genuine article, the real McCoy. Um, all others are just knockoff brands. All others are just pretenders. And the structure of the Greek here is just beautiful. Uh, what he says literally is, I am the vine, the true one. I am the vine, the true one. It puts even more emphasis on how genuine and real he is. So the true one, the real McCoy, the genuine article has arrived. And that's good news, especially for two people. And the first of them is the gardener. This is good news for the gardener. Jesus says that he is the true vine and his father is the gardener. When you look through the Old Testament, you'll find that God was a frustrated gardener. Israel was the vineyard of his planting, and he had wanted it to be a fruitful vineyard for him. Anybody wanting a good harvest of grapes would want a fruitful vineyard 
And God wanted a harvest. What do you do when you're planting a garden to make sure it's going to be fruitful? I know what, what I do. I borrow a friend's rototiller. I till up the ground. I enrich the soil. I uh, carefully plant or transplant. Water, I weed, I keep intruders out. All of those things that a gardener does when he wants a good harvest. And God had done all of that with his vineyard. Time and time again in the Old Testament, he speaks of how he cared for his vineyard Israel, but it produced no fruit for him. Let me just take you through a quick inventory of some of the places where God speaks about his disappointment in this vineyard that he had planted. Uh, Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 he says this, I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now, you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Can you hear the disappointment? God's voice, he did everything he could for that vineyard, and yet it didn't produce for him. Another one, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21 says this, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Ezekiel chapter 15 is just an eight-verse chapter but it speaks of God's judgment on the kingdom of Judah. It was written during the Babylonian captivity after God had exercised judgment on his people. Ezekiel chapter 19, verses 10 to 14, give us a lament for what had once been a fruitful vine. Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, where Israel is described as a spreading vine that lapsed into idolatry. Psalm 80 is a lament for what had become of this choice vineyard that God had planted, Israel. God is a frustrated gardener throughout the Old Testament. You see this metaphor throughout the Old Testament showing up again and again, each time expressing God's disappointment over what his people had done. They were a beautiful planting of God. They were intended to bear fruit for him but they had turned their own way. This vineyard 
is never mentioned in the Old Testament apart from God's disappointment over its failure. God's vineyard had gone wild. The frustration and disappointment really comes through in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4. He says, what more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? What more could have been done? Answer, nothing. Nothing more could have been done for this vineyard. The gardener did everything right and experienced a crop failure. God's a frustrated gardener. 700 years later, Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am the true vine. I'm the real McCoy. I'm the genuine article. My father is the gardener, and the father can finally be satisfied. This is the true vine that won't become corrupted, as Israel had. This is the true vine that will never go wild. As you look through Scripture, you find that God has always wanted a relationship with a people. From the time he walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But time and time again, what was intended to become, a, to, to be a fruitful and healthy relationship became corrupted, institutionalized. God gave the Jews laws that would show them how to live. Last week, we looked at the Ten Commandments as statements of what a life looks like when it's in a right relationship with God. When our lives are right with God, we will have no other gods before him. When our lives are in right relationship with God, we won't misuse his name. We will honor our parents. We won't murder, and on and on and on throughout all the Ten Commandments. But they didn't look at it that way. Instead, they lost sight of how it would make them unique among the nations in order to reach the nations. And they turned it into a massive collection of laws. And then they added rulings on how to interpret them, and they spent their time splitting hairs over what's legal and what's not. They turned what God intended to make them unique so they could reach the world, and they turned it inward and looked at themselves, and they lost sight of the purpose of God's law. Institutions do that. They become corrupted. But the good news is Jesus isn't an institution. He's a person, and he wants a personal relationship with us. We can find him in an institution like this one. We can find him in a church at the bridge. But we need to be careful not to substitute the institution for the person. Throughout the history of God's people, whenever God's people have substituted an institution for him, the results have been harmful. God made a covenant with his people, starting with Abraham, in order to reach the world. He made that covenant in Genesis chapter 12. You can see it there. And, and there in, in Genesis 12, uh, God gives a threefold blessing to Abraham. He gives him first a personal blessing, says, I will bless you and make your name great. He gives him a national blessing and says, I will make you into a great nation. And then he gives him a universal blessing. He says, and all peoples of the earth will be blessed 
through you. Threefold blessing intended to start with Abraham and reach the world. God is still interested in doing that and reaching the world. That's the mission we have as a church. We are the bride of Christ. We are precious to him. And he's given us a mission. We're here to introduce people to Jesus and grow them up in a relationship with him. So what happened to Israel could never happen here, right? We won't ever substitute the institution of the church for the person of our Lord, will we? Ever notice how much easier it is to talk about your church than it is to talk about your Lord? But the church won't save anyone, only a relationship with the Lord Jesus can. All that we do as a church needs to center around that mission that he's given us to help people connect with God and develop them into fully devoted followers of Christ. It's printed on the front of your program. It's on a banner in the lobby. It's everywhere we can put it to remind us that's our mission. And in a sense, the church and all of its programs are a means to an end. They're helping us fulfill that mission. They all help us hook people up with Jesus. The gospel is about a relationship with him, and the gospel spreads through relationships as well. And all the programs we have here are not just for us. They're also for people who don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus so that we can help them find that relationship. We need to hook people up with him. He is the true vine. So the true vine has come. That's good news for the gardener. It's also good news for the branches. Good news for the branches. You need to know something about grapevines before we continue. Normally... When we think of a vine, what we think of is, is a long shoot of something that grows quickly and, and climbs uh, structures that, that it can climb. Uh, that is not, though, what a grapevine is. That is what a branch of a grapevine is. What the Bible calls the vine is a stump of wood that the branches grow off of. So you see that, that stump of wood there in the middle of it, and you can see a couple of branches uh, off of that, but you see some clusters of grapes growing off of the branches. The vine is that stump of wood. The branches find their life in the vine and produce grapes because of that. Now, that stump of wood isn't very impressive to look at, is it? But... The key to the whole thing is the vine, that homely stump of wood. The branches hook up to the vine. It gives them life. They produce fruit. But here's the key to the whole thing. A branch is only as viable as its vine. Cut it off, it dies. Hook it up to something else, it produces strange fruit. Picture yourself as a severed branch. What do you need? Well, a self-made person would probably say, well, just stick me in the ground, give me water, I'll be fine from there. Do we realize how dumb that really is? You can't do that with the branch of, of a grape plant. You can't just stick it in the ground and expect it to sprout roots and grow. It won't do that, it'll just die. 
A branch can't survive that way. We can't do it on our own. What we need then, if we're severed, is to be grafted into a living vine. Now, if you had your choice between a wide array of vines to be grafted into from sickly-looking ones to really healthy-looking ones, maybe even one that would say, I am the true vine, what would you pick? The choice is obvious. You'd pick the true vine. You'd pick the healthy one. And Jesus says, I am the true vine. That's me. You need me. The true vine is the source of all we need. It's all a branch needs. Other sources will ultimately disappoint us. He won't. He is the true vine. You don't need to look elsewhere. There is an unholy trinity that people pursue, have been pursuing uh, since time immemorial. You know what they are. Money, sex, and power. This unholy trinity. People pursue those until they realize that those things don't ultimately satisfy. They're fake satisfiers. They say they will satisfy us. But eventually, we get to the point where we realize they can't. Chuck Colson was a brilliant attorney, uh, one of the Watergate conspirators. He uh, spent time in prison, and it was in prison that he found the true vine. He found a relationship with Jesus. It was Colson who said, all my life I climbed the ladder of success only to realize that it was leaning against the wrong wall. And in that disappointment and that realization, he came to find life in Christ. I think his only regret was that he didn't find him sooner. Don't settle for fake satisfiers when the true vine has come. He won't disappoint you. And he won't run out. His supply is inexhaustible. Sometimes we're kind of like a fish in the middle of the ocean, worried that we might run out of water. His supply is inexhaustible. Philippians 4.19 says, My God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. All your needs. Inexhaustible. He won't meet our needs uh, out of his riches. It, it doesn't take anything out of them for him to meet our needs. It's according to his riches. They're inexhaustible. Now, think about where we look to get our needs met. Some people look to their work, their job, their vocation. And work can be a good thing. Helps us meet our physical needs, but it can also become an idol when we look to it to meet all of our needs. Our identity can get wrapped up in our work. When you're asked to introduce yourself to a, a new group of people, what do you start with? What do you do for a living, maybe? Hmm? What you lead off with speaks of your identity. And what we need to recognize is that our identity is rooted in Christ, not in anything we do. You can change jobs, but Jesus remains constant. Some people... Uh, find their needs met in relationships. And relationships are good, but they won't ultimately satisfy you. They don't complete you. you. Ever meet a single who thinks they'll be complete when they find a spouse? Ever meet a married couple that feels they'll be complete when they have a child? 
Ever meet an older couple that thinks they'll be complete when they've launched the last child? Stories told of a, a pastor and a priest and a rabbi discussing when life begins. And the pastor said, life begins at birth. And the priest said, no, life begins at conception. And the rabbi said, no, life begins when the last child leaves the home and your dog dies. <laughs> For the believer in Christ, life has begun for us. It begins when we receive Christ as our Savior. We don't need to wait for anything else to happen for our life to be complete. Jesus is the true vine. He completes us. We stand complete in him. So take time to be with him. He's your source of life. Got a new cell phone a while ago. It had some amazing features on it I'd never seen before, so I stayed up late working all the features. It was real exciting. And then I got up in the next morning, picked up the cell phone, and it wouldn't work. Blank screen. Brought it into the guy that sold it to me. He said, here, what's wrong with this? He goes, well, let's plug it in and see what, what it can do. And I said, plug it in? I'm not that dumb, but you get the point. <laughs> You can't run a cell phone without plugging it into its power source. And just like our cell phones need to stay charged for them to be useful, we need to be connected to our power source as well. We, the branches, need to be grafted into the true vine. We need to stay connected to him. A severed branch is no good. It'll die. It needs to be connected to a vine, and Jesus is the true vine. All others are going to disappoint. Now, our natural starting point isn't connection with the true vine. Our, our natural starting point is, is we are severed branches looking for life. We're not naturally branches of the true vine. We need to be grafted in. Romans chapter 11 speaks of a slightly different metaphor. It speaks of the metaphor of olive trees, but they graft branches in too. And so Paul is speaking in Romans 11 about branches that have been broken off of the olive tree, and the olive tree is a symbol for Israel. You can find it on their coinage and everything. It's been a symbol of Israel for a long time. Paul speaks then about branches being cut off to make room for wild branches to be grafted in. He's talking there about the inclusion of Gentiles in the promises of God for his people. And so that principle of grafting in applies to us as well. Apart from Christ, Jesus says in John 15, 5, we can do nothing. We find our life then through being grafted into Christ the true vine. That's the starting point. So the question for us is, have you found life in Christ? Don't miss the opportunity to be grafted into him. Trust in him today. It's, it's very simple. You just say, Lord Jesus, I am choosing now to put my trust in you. I thank you for paying the price for all my sin on the cross. You took it on yourself. I thank you for rising from the dead to demonstrate your power over sin and death. I thank you that you desire a relationship with me, that you want to allow me to be grafted into you, and I want that too. When we do that, we find ourselves in an organic union 
with him. His life then flows through us. In the passage we looked at last week, Jesus said, on that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. When we trust in Christ, we are grafted into him and we find our life in him. We have the opportunity then, grafted into him, to sink our fibers deep into his being and receive the nourishment that the true vine can provide. We can neglect that. Generally, when we do, we will suffer for it. I think of the things in my life that aren't all they could be, and I think that they are more symptoms than they are causes. I think the real cause is not paying attention to my connection to the true vine. What's that look like? Well, let me change metaphors for a minute here. The navigators use a diagram of a wheel. And that wheel has several components. At the center of it, the hub itself is Christ. Christ the center. He is what provides power for that wheel to turn. And where the rubber hits the road on the outside is our obedience to Christ. And what connects the hub providing the power with the life yielded to him are four spokes, two vertical, two horizontal. The two, horizon the two vertical spokes are God's word and prayer. We get God's word into us. We pray, we, we connect with him in prayer. And the two horizontal spokes are fellowship and witnessing. Christian fellowship like we have in the church, sharing our faith when we go out these doors. And it is so simple. Six components that describe a balanced Christian life. And it's all about staying connected with Christ. He provides the power that turns that wheel, the power to live a victorious Christian life. Now, back to the true vine, we stay connected then with him by living in him, sinking our fibers deep into his being, and receiving the nourishment that only he can give. So how is your connection with the true vine? That's what we want to explore over these next four weeks. Now, you'll find some questions for further thought in your program, and I'm just going to take you there right now. If you pull out... The sermon notes page, on the back of that, you will find this week seven questions for further thought and discussion. I hope that you'll put these to use this week, maybe over lunch or dinner today with your family, maybe with a couple of friends, and just talk these things through. They will help us to put some implementation and application to what we're looking at as we go. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for uh, the true vine that has come. I think, Lord, of all of the frustration that you experienced in planting a vineyard and watching it turn the other way. And Father, I pray that we would be uh, fruitful branches of the true vine, staying closely connected to him, bearing fruit for your glory in Jesus' name.
Amen.